Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Hassan Minaj, a true visionary and a fierce comedic talent. In a few short years, Minaj has leapfrogged from being a correspondent on Jon Stewart's The Daily Show to having his own Netflix stand-up special, The Homecoming King, to hosting his own show, The Patriot Act. Here is Hassan Minaj. Testing, one, two, three. (laughs) Hi, hi. Hi, it's Krista. Hi, Krista. How's it going? Uh, It's going great. This is my first time doing this over the phone for a podcast. I've done so many interviews over the phone. But what are you looking at? Like, just for listeners, where am I catching you right now? So right now I am in <laughs> the uh, one of our audience holding rooms, which is downstairs at the studios for Patriot Act. Um, it's called VIP3. It's, just, it's not because it's particularly more important. It's just the biggest audience holding room that we have for uh, guests and family members. So I'm just sitting in a room. There's couches here. There's posters on the wall. There's a photograph of me getting blocked by Asia Wilson, WNBA Rookie of the Year. Uh, She's swatting me into the stands uh, at the Celebrity (laughs) All-Star Game. Um, There's another book. There's there's a uh, this was a gift given to me by I think someone on the staff, it's an MCAT study guide uh, that's sitting on the table. You know how most Mm. people have Variety, The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. Uh, We have a big MCAT study guide booklet. um, Classic. Just as a joke. And and then um, I grew up in Northern California, and I'm a huge Sacramento Kings fan. I grew up in Davis. uh, And so the Sacramento Kings sent us some some cool paraphernalia, and so that's here as well. So little sort of tidbits and pieces from my life. Fun. Um, Yeah. I have to say you're... Homecoming King, I watched your stand-up special, and it's the only time that I've actually cried and laughed watching or listening to stand-up. Oh, my God. Thank you. That that's uh, that means a lot. Wow. Yeah, no, Thank I was you. so unexpectedly moved. I didn't, I didn't have any preconceived notion of what I was going to watch, and I just remember that the, the feeling was so emotional and just like that happy, sad, that happy, sad area. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it was um, it was one of those things where, um, you know, it was uh, my life story. So it was all sort of bottled into to one piece of work. And, and I know that um, it's a very rare thing. Um, so I'm just grateful that it connected with people in a, in a meaningful way. Well, I want to talk, obviously, we're going to talk about Patriot Act, but I want to kind of go back in time just a little bit. But at what point growing up did you realize you were funny? When did you get your first laugh and that switch went off and you're like, I I need more of that? Yeah, I think inadvertently, I, I didn't realize that these were like the necessary qualities of being sort of, quote unquote, a funny person. 
I was not the funniest uh, friend in our group. You know how like there's always a group of friends and mm-hmm. there's there's the, there's the one friend that you have that will literally make everybody crack up. They're always doing something crazy. They can do funny voices. They are in and of themselves funny. The way they move, the way they talk, the way they act is funny. I wasn't that. I was like a lot. Um, I was a lot more reserved, uh, definitely a shyer kid. But I realized this much later in life. I'd be hanging out with my friends and one of my friends that I grew up with in the neighborhood, he had an older brother. We'd gotten into some trouble. We had basically – we went into our neighbor's backyard. We weren't supposed to go there. Um, she was this older lady who would get scared if people just walked into her backyard. So we thought it would be really funny if we walked into her backyard and, and we were just being silly. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, we got caught. Um, my friend's older brother uh, was like, OK, what happened? Because, you know, Mrs. DeLuga called and she's really upset. So what happened? And one of my friends, Mike, basically said, don't let him tell the story. He's going to make it crazier than what really happened. And I was like, what do you mean? And, he, and one of my friends, Mike, was just like, you're going to you're going to make it sound crazy. I'm going to let me tell my brother what happened. And I didn't realize this till later. I had this thing where if I was telling a story, I would find little nooks and crannies in the story, moments to comedically heighten things. And I didn't realize this until much later, until I was a stand-up comedian, that, oh, that is a necessary thing for comedic storytelling. You take the mundane and you make it pop, so to speak. And then another moment, again, I didn't realize that this was a necessary condition for comedy, was when I was in high school – I was big into forensics and public speaking, speech and debate. Mm-hmm. And specifically the the category that I was really into was impromptu public speaking. So you would you would just get a topic and you'd have to debate and argue against another person. And you know, you'd go to like a, a high school gymnasium and your judges were just parents that would sit there all afternoon and watch different high school kids debate topics. And I had the strategy whenever I would get an opportunity to speak and I'd have five minutes or ten minutes to do my speech, I would kind of poke fun at what was happening in the room, uh, the city that we were in, uh, the other person's argument, how bad the gymnasium was, how I could smell, um, you know, like I could smell uh, the asbestos in the walls, just like mm-hmm. st- stupid stuff like that. And I would see the parents sort of look up from their glasses and just be like, huh, like, hmm, like they'd have these like little like smirks or these laughs, even if it was like I was on an away game. Like I was making fun of the high school where they like they take their children to school. And I noticed the times that I sort of broke the script. I broke the fourth wall. I sort of poked fun at um, where I was or what was happening or even the other person's argument. Off the bat, I would get 10 to 15 points higher than if I just followed the structure and the form of what I was supposed to say and what we what I had practiced with my coach. And later on, I realized that is stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is... It's funny speech and debate. You are presenting an argument, but you do it in a funny way that engenders empathy and laughter from your audience. Hmm. I would never think of it's like uh, the improv part of it, but that's so funny in a in a that you didn't get penalized. In fact, you got rewarded for that. I love totally. that. What was your? How old were you when you actually your very first time you got on a stage and held a microphone or stood in front of a mic? I was 18 when I first got on stage. So that's the first time I started going to open mics and stuff like that. So uh, I was in college. You know, a big part of my freshman year of college was 
I was part of what was called the T3 generation. I know that's something that we take for granted, but it was super high speed internet. And I went to UC Davis and they, the, all the UCs, my freshman year of college, um, there was this sort of torrent like website that allowed all the UC students to share files with one another. And (laughs) coincidentally enough, all the students were just sharing and downloading movies and TV shows illegally. Um, And so (laughs) within a matter of minutes, you could connect to a kid at UC Berkeley or UC Santa Cruz, and you could download their entire music playlist, their entire movie playlist, all of those things. And my roommate happened to download a ton of stand-up comedy. So while we were waiting for him to like download a bunch of episodes of Family Guy, he queued up some stand-up and I immediately saw it and I was like, oh my God, it's funny speech and debate. I totally get it. Like that's it. I can, I can do that. Um, and so then I started going to open mics and um, I did good enough at the open mic that it got me to just keep going. How long could you go before you got the light? This is where it's kind of weird. You know, I grew up, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrants. So growing up, we didn't have cable television in the house, all sorts of strict rules. I didn't know the sort of rules to quote unquote showbiz. So I didn't know that, hey, doing your first five minutes is really hard. I had a ton of material. So I actually ran the light. I did like 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> it was a lot of confidence and not very good jokes. You know, it was just a lot of attitude. Um I was like pacing the stage like a madman. It just didn't make sense. Um, (laughs) But again, like getting a solid C from the audience was good enough for me to be like, oh, I should continue doing that. And and believe it or not, stand-up comedians, we are generally delusional enough to to if if we even get like a smattering of applause, we're like, yep, I'm really good. Um, So it was just enough to keep me hooked to the drug. And so I just kept coming back. Um, and, and, and I slowly and slowly got better. It took me quite a few years, but, it, it, but I, I stuck with it. And were you supporting yourself doing other things during this time? Yeah. Or I is mean, it all I, during school, all during college? Yeah. What was really great is while I was at college, I sort of had the cover of being a student. So, you know, those four years people go, Hey, what do you do? And you go, Oh, I'm a student. Um, nobody's asking, okay, are you, are you particularly good at this? Or if, if this, if, if you call yourself a comedian, is that your career? Is that how you pay rent? Have I seen you on TV before? I just tell people I'm in college and I'm doing comedy. So that gave me a good half decade. Cause I, I, I was also a fifth year, uh, it gave me like, you know, five years of my life to just like, you know, join the comedy club at my university to put on shows, to, drive to open mics, to drive to San Francisco, meet the young crop of comedians that were starting to come up in San Francisco. Ali Wong was starting to be this rising star in San Francisco. W. Kamau Bell, Moshe Kasher, Brent Weinbach, these comedians, there was this like little movement that was happening outside in San Francisco. And um, at a very young age, I got to see um, these comedians firsthand. Like I just, I was there every night. It's interesting because I feel like your generation of comedians, it's its warmer and fuzzy than how I remember it in previous generations. There's always this, feels like there's a climate of, of competitiveness and angst in stand-up comedy in the past. And it just yeah. seems, at least what I see on TV, right? And I see how you guys interact with each other. It feels like it's more of a community now yeah, than ever yeah, before. Is- there isn't just this like Letterman Leno beef where it's this thing of, oh, we don't talk to each other. I always knew. Da, 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 da. 
And I think that came from almost scarcity. There were these gatekeepers. There was just NBC or CBS. There was just one show and one JFL and one way to make it. And now um, I think what's really awesome is that the medium is is matching the hustle that comedians always had. What I mean by that is artists, we've always been pirates. The problem has been the there was always a bottleneck when it came to distribution. So great, you have this weird, quirky talent. Is that going to work on an ABC sitcom Wednesdays at 8? But now there's podcasts and then there was YouTube sketch and then there was Vine videos and then there's all these different things. And now there's over 400 scripted shows. There's all these mediums now to get your quirks out. The pirates can be on all these different ships. And so I feel so lucky to be part of the golden age of internet distribution. Mm-hmm. I'm a child of immigrants as well. And I part of why Homecoming, your, your special spoke to me about, you know, are you getting into Stanford? Did you get an A on the map? Just like the, the <laughs> emphasis yeah. on education was above and beyond yes. anything. Yes. And I, like you, got really bad SAT scores. But I mean, re- mine were worse, way worse than yours. I would have wept with joy had I gotten your SAT scores, which That's I think hilarious. you said were in the 1500s or 1300s. 1300s, yeah. right? Yeah, the 1500, I wish. We, I wouldn't be on this podcast if I had a 1500. I'd be at, I'd be at McKinsey or something. Right. Well, that's why I wanted to ask you if you had gotten like close to 1600, which is perfect. Yeah. Do you think that you would have had the option? Would you have been allowed to do comedy or was it that kind of thing? It was like, well, what else is he going to do? He only got a 1380. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so wild. Like, um, I think about it all the time when I, I remember getting my SAT scores and getting the college results back in the mail. I mean, you you, you had to open it up in the mail. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they also sent it to you to my Yahoo email address. And that was a big deal. There's the like the day you check it. But mm-hmm. I think about this all the time. Like, I really approached stand up and I approached going to open mics like, look, you have nothing to lose. You can't fall off the floor, man. You went to Davis High. You're going to UC Davis. You live at home. You're upstairs in the same bedroom that you grew up in. Like, things aren't looking great for you. You work at Office Max. Like, you sell printers. Like, this is not <laughs> a good look. You might as well go perform in basements for drunk people at 1.30 in the morning. It's, it's not it, – you have nothing to lose. And that that sort of thing – actually was the greatest gift of all. There wasn't a ton of expectation on me. And my parents had sort of doubled down on my younger sister, Aisha, who is really smart and got almost a perfect on the SAT and, you know, went to UPenn. And she's amazing. You know, she's the she's incredible. Thank God for her, right? (laughs) She asks me, tells me this all the time. She's like, you owe me so much. Uh, (laughs) I, uh, I took a lot of heat for you. I mean, they, they, mom and dad really, really like hyper scrutinized me because they, they sort of gave up on you. And so she's like, I delivered this for you. That way you could, you could go be the creative person. And and it's a hundred percent true. Generationally, people won't understand that. Like, you know, me and you, we are children of mm-hmm. immigrants. Generally the first generation of immigrants, they, they get, they have to be the, the Jewish or Indian doctors or lawyers mm-hmm. or bankers. And then their children get to take improv classes at UCB. I sort of leapfrogged that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I jumped the shark, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But you did marry a doctor. So that yes. was good on you. That was yes. huge. I, yes. Yes. I married up. I <laughs> if, so married up. If you can't be one, marry one. Uh, well, you've had an extraordinary five years. I, 
you know, just the half a decade of where you feel like it's been, to me, it seems like you've been shot out of a cannon. And I'm curious out of all those, all the achievements you've made along the way, like one, just your, you know, Homecoming King, your special, a Peabody Award, working for Jon Stewart, Time 100, and Ellen, you know, you were on Ellen, all the late night talk shows, White House Correspondence Dinner, your own show on Netflix. Which, which of these impressed your parents the most? That's interesting. I think I think the White House Correspondence Dinner probably the most, mainly because it's one of those things where, and I think we take it for granted here in America, but people around the world watch it. You know, the the day after I did it, it was on the front page of the Hindustan Times in India. It it's one of those things where. I know people say the Oscars is the most coveted gig in in, in comedy. Mm -hmm. I would tend to disagree. I really do think the WHCD is one of the most powerful gigs in comedy because as a comedian, you are making fun of the most powerful people in the world, period, end stop. That is a luxury we take for granted. You cannot do that in other countries around the world. You cannot make fun of Jair Bolsonaro. To his face. You cannot make fun of Prime Minister Narendra Modi to his face. You cannot make fun of CC to his face. You cannot make fun of world leaders to their face and they sit on the dais as their them mm-hmm. and the, the, the media corporations just sit there and let you do it. It's an incredible thing and there's a reason why when it's live streamed on the internet, it gets tens of millions of views on YouTube and Facebook because people in the Philippines and Russia and uh, the UK and South America, they're watching this going, oh my God, this is incredible. It is an incredible honor and privilege and it made me really proud to be an American. It made me proud to be the son of both my parents, that they sacrificed everything to come to America to have me here, um, here in the States. And it was a just beautiful full circle moment where I remember I was standing on that podium and I was making fun of Wolf Blitzer to his face. And I look (laughs) over out of the corner of my eye, I see my mom sitting in a red sari. And it was just beautiful. I am the child of Indian, American, Muslim immigrants, you know, and I'm all of those things. And I didn't have to compromise any of them. And I'm I'm lucky enough to stand on this stage for this moment. And for 20 minutes, I have the world's ears. And I just feel I felt incredibly lucky and um, just really lucky and humbled that God gave me that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Would it something you would you return to do it again? I would do it in a heartbeat because it is a very tough gig, and I know since our current administration, it's you know it's almost it's easier but then tougher at the same time. People say people say that all the time, and that's the narrative on every article you read about how it's this horrible room. You have to assess it for what it is. It's 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 an incredible privilege and honor. You have the world's attention. It, period. It's it's one of the best gigs ever, and the people you're actually poking fun of. Uh, this is no insult to show business and, you know, you know, the Hollywood elite. But let's be real. They passed the legislation that shapes the future of this country. Mm-hmm. That matters more so than making fun of someone's dress or making fun of which actor is dating which actor. What has surprised you the most about your success or what's been the most unexpected success that's come of of you becoming more well-known and more popular? I think the thing I I never realized, and you know, John told me about this. Um, John Stewart, when I was at the show, 
when, when you're at The Daily Show, he says, and he said this after he was leaving, he was like, I'm going to leave. And I remember when he, 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 he told the staff internally he was leaving, everybody in the building was crying and everyone was super sad. No one knew what the future would be. Are we going to still have jobs? Are we, is, is The Daily Show still going to be a thing? Where do we go from here? Because that life that you have on 52nd Street, it's your life every day, day in and day out. And you clock into the news and the political world every day and you just cannot imagine what life outside of that would be and you make this every day we make this little show in this little black box theater in in the basement of our studio and it goes out to the world and john said it and i didn't really understand what he was saying he was like you have no idea the reach that this show has don't be scared believe in the equity of what you built here at the show and go out and do incredible things. I believe in you, but trust me, I know that we get we get caught up because we just we just feel like we we make this little stage show every day, but he's like people around the world see it. So just understand that. And I never understood it because I was so caught up in that grind. And it wasn't until I started hosting Patriot Act that you know, just when I go out now people will see me and they'll say, "Oh my god, thank you." for talking about student loan debt mm-hmm. and not making it a thing I should be ashamed of. I have student loan debt and thank you for breaking it down. I've been trying to explain it. I've been trying to understand it. And you found a way for it to be really palpable and just easy to digest or seeing people say, thank you so much for talking about drug pricing and making it this thing that is, again, digestible and insignificant. On the international side, people coming up to me just – in the subway going, I'm Sudanese and no one is talking about what's happening in Sudan. Thank you for, you know, we, we exist in the margins of, of, of global political discourse, but you're talking about it. Thank you. People from Saudi Arabia, people from India, that it's really cool. Uh, that to me is something I never imagined would happen. I didn't know it would have the effect that it had. Are you recognized now in New York? So the, the thing I get the most is people will just run up to me and just yell out a topic. So they'll just be like, <laughs> Rohingya. And then they'll just keep walking. <laughs> I've become a li- living version of AskJeeves.com. Like they're just like, no, 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 you need to do this. Explain this to me. I need to understand it. But I have to explain to people, we track these stories for months before we do them. It's a, it's a long process. And this is one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you, because I, I feel like uh, you are just the smartest voice working in comedy right now. I love, I love the format of the show. I love how it draws me in, and I'm learning something at the same time. I'm being entertained. One, I just want to know how you came to name your show. What was the process in figuring out that this was the right name? And mm-hmm. also, just about how how do you choose the topics, and how long does it take you to get to them, and what's your what's your room look like, your writer's room or your committee? Like how much of it, uh, if you could just explain a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, it was one of those things where I always wanted to take the opportunity to subvert what is normally expected in the genre and in the medium. And again, this is where like, you know, luck plays a huge factor in, in why I was lucky enough to get the show. Coming off of the correspondence dinner, a month after I did the correspondence dinner, Literally four weeks later, Homecoming King came out and it couldn't have been a better time for me. Um, I'm on The Daily Show. I I get to do this massively prestigious gig. It goes over well. I don't bomb. People look at it very positively. 
Then four weeks later, this special that I've been working on for over three years that I've been developing and curating comes out. It's very well received. It it, it wins a Peabody. And, you know, I I sort of started receiving a ton of interest from a bunch of different networks and a bunch of different places of, do you want to do your own thing? What would you like to do? Do you want to do a show? Do you want to do a scripted thing? Do you want to do a non-scripted thing? And I was actually developing what was going to be my next one-man show, which was a collection of stories of things that I had learned and kind of done in the field leading up to the 2016 election. So almost like a four-act play of of the different peoples and the different stories that I was already doing. And each act was almost like a deep dive into a specific story that I had done on, say, immigration or something that I had done on water or, or uh, an, another thing on infrastructure. And uh, Prashant, uh, who who is the head writer for the White House Correspondent and the co-creator of Patriot Act, he, I, I'm telling him this thing and I'm workshopping these stories um, with with different friends and I'm working shopping it on stage. And he goes, dude, that's a show. That's that's an act. Each of those acts is a show. You could that could be like an episode of the show. We had already designed, you know, with Mark Janowitz, who had who was our st- the stage design, um, who's who's in charge of stage design and the art director for um, Homecoming King. We already had a visual language that we had created using the screens as this interactive palette where I'm playing host to everything to clips to graphics to things that are happening and i'm interacting with it almost like it's my jarvis so we already had a visual language i had a narrative sort of storytelling style i wanted to take take it from my personal to something that's more political hey how about if i use my pov as a way to dissect something like you know amazon and monopolies or mm-hmm. an international news story why why don't we take the personal and make it political use my pov as a way to break something down just as an evolution as an artist not to do oh i'm going to do homecoming king 2 return of the king here's some stories <laughs> about my wife and my baby which i could, totally could have done but mm-hmm. to me i wanted to talk about the things that really keep me up the things i've been that i've been spending the last five, six years tracking and, and and wanting to do. But again, I didn't have the the format or the runway room to do it. So I ended up putting together this proof of concept and I called it Patriot Act. I wanted to subvert, again, in, in the late night space, there had never been someone like me. And I remember when I was in high school, after 9-11, the Patriot Act was, was, was dropped as a piece of legislation that allowed the U.S. government to legally spy on people that they assumed to be threats to the United States of America. And a lot of Muslim communities were targeted through the Patriot Act. Their phones were tapped and they were spied on. Uh, mosques were tapped as well. And I thought, it's so what – a, what a brilliant Trojan horse. You call it something like the Patriot Act to do something that's so unpatriotic. And I thought – wow, I have this opportunity to host my own show. Why don't I call it Patriot Act to sort of reclaim that name? Because if people don't know what it is, they'll be like, wow, Patriot Act, it's this American political comedy show. And the people that do know, they're like, oh, shit, nicely done. You know? <laughs> yeah. So we do that. And then, um, yeah, uh, Netflix was just really excited. And they they saw the proof of concept that we shot and they were like, we want to do this and we want to back it in a major way. We think that your POV, the stories that you're tracking, the things that you're trying to do, you're attacking the white space, pun intended, in a very interesting way. You're a global comedian that wants to talk about global issues from an insider, outsider perspective. We're a global platform. Let's do mm-hmm. this. And it just seemed like the right fit. It seemed like 
the things that I want to talk about, Saudi Arabia, Indian elections, the Sudan protests, uh, China and censorship, these are things that are so much bigger than the CBS, ABC, POV. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I have, I've always grown up with an insider-outsider relationship with the United States. And believe it or not, that's the way the rest of the world looks at the United States. They also have an insider-outsider relationship. They love our pop culture. They love our media. They love everything that we create. And at the same time, they're also like, what the hell are you guys doing? So it just became this very organic way to tap into that. And Netflix seemed like the perfect platform to do it on. Was it very clear to you the tone you wanted to take from the beginning? Or did you have to kind of workshop that a little bit of of how you how yeah. it was going to be? Yeah. So I, I was at the Comedy Cellar for months. There's this little venue called the Fat Black Pussycat. It, it's, it's a little workshop room that is around the corner from the Comedy Cellar. And I was spending months there um, working on these mini like headline pieces. And I end, ended up sort of honing in on this headline piece on refugees. The United States had this big policy about oh, should we let them in? Mm-hmm. And the, t- that, the title sort of of my headline of my sort of Patriot Act essay was should we let them in? And it was both a numbers analysis on refugees and sort of it, it tapped into both from the, hey, identity politics standpoint, the cultural standpoint, and then the pure numbers standpoint. And that's that's exactly when we honed in on that. I go, that's the show. It's facts and feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I wanted to bring in. It's it's merging what I did at The Daily Show also with what I did with Homecoming King. How do I talk about just, hey, this is just the way I feel about this issue. And let's talk about the way people feel about this issue and couple it with insane, cool data visualizations and just hardcore just nerd pro publica facts. <laughs> it's like the 60 minutes of comedy. Totally. Uh, yeah. And, no, I, and, I, and I don't take that as an insult, by the way, either. People are like, this is like a TED talk on Adderall. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> have you ever seen people scrolling through their phones? You know how many tabs people have open in their, their browsers oh at God. work right now? It's insane. To me, I wanted to make something that fits the visual language of the times. That's mm-hmm. why when I'm on that stage... You'll see every episode looks different. The mm-hmm. India episode has is is orange. The cricket episode is 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 green, y- yellow, and orange. The the Brazil episode is that beautiful green pulled from their flag in the Amazon rainforest. All of these things are by design. I wanted it to feel. No, I'm not going to be at a desk. I'm not going to be in a suit, and there's not going to be a fake city skyline behind me. I'm going to be up on my feet. I'm going to be moving in every four to five seconds. There's going to be a tear out, a pull quote, uh, a mock-up, a sot, a clip, something happening so that it's almost like you're just getting the stage and the show feels like an extension of my mind. So topics, because you do some domestic topics, big pharma, guns, Mm -hmm. the NRA. How is it by committee? You know, how how do you make those decisions on what you're going to cover? Look, I mean, I it's usually a gut check from me, but our room is pretty stacked in terms of the news department and the writing department. So we have news slash research where we have a collection of amazing journalists that formerly came from, you know, the AP, the New York Times, um, Vice, like all sorts of different places. It's a it's a white opposition research, right? Some people mm-hmm. are formerly working on the. Hillary Clinton campaign. Some people formerly came from other campaigns. I wanted this real amazing mix of people, of people that were real, you know, sort of on the ground, people that came over from other, you know, cable news, people that came from sort of hard print journalism. 
the news team will bring forth a bunch of pitches, a bunch of stories. These are big, meaty stories, and we'll we'll hash it out. And one of the things that I've I've tried to do is I delineate delineate these topics into two main buckets. The first bucket is what you actually care about. And the second bucket is what you should care about. <laughs> and, and it's important to, to know the difference between those two things. All right. In our day-to-day life, what we actually care about is Game of Thrones, Amazon Prime, is my seamless order on time, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Stuff that's not kind of not meaningful, but mm-hmm. hey, real talk, we do care about it. So stories like Amazon, student loan debt, drug pricing, those are things where no matter where you are in the country – it affects my life. We have an up- upcoming episode that's coming out this Sunday called Internet Inequality, basically why your internet sucks, why America, who invented the internet, is still 20th in the world when it comes to broadband speed and why there is a huge internet monopoly that's happening right now in this country. That's mainly due to sort of Comcast and Charter. Um, that affects your life. Those are things you care about. Things you should care about are – Philippine elections, the protests in Sudan, the mm-hmm. United States' relationship with Saudi Arabia, feminist protesters in China. Those are things we all cover that I feel like this. these are things we should care about. Let's find a comedic way, a comedic end to make these things resonate, you know? And mm-hmm. so those are, those are the two buckets that all of our stories fall in. And I'll do a gut check. Do we have enough tape? Do we have a villain? Do we have enough interviews? Do we have enough subject material to make it significant? All right. I want to talk about your wife for a second. Okay. Traditionally, most men wait until they have like a lot of money or they're making money to propose and get married. And you've said that you were basically dead broke when you proposed. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I was broke. broke. (laughs) What gave you the confidence to propose? And to think she would say yes. It actually, it actually really wasn't confidence. It was more desperation. It was like, <laughs> I don't have a lot of things in my life, but I have this. And I honestly had come to that point. Maybe that that great deadline article isn't going to drop about me. But you know what? Like what I have here is is way more significant and important. I remember I was auditioning for this project called Cuz Bros. It was a pilot called Cuz Bros. And if you can guess the, the log line of the show. <laughs> it's their roommates. Um, they think they're cousins, but it turns out they're actually biological brothers. Mm-hmm. So, so th- and they're living in New York and they get into all sorts of hijinks. They hate each other. And then they realize, whoa, we're blood. We're family. We need to get along. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and their journey in New York and all sorts of hijinks ensue. It's this fall on CBS. It's Cuz Bros. But I happen to be going to a producer session for the audition. And I'm sitting there with a bunch of actors and everyone's really competitive to to try to get cuz bros. And I tell them about uh, my girlfriend at the time who's getting her PhD from UCLA in public health. Uh, and, uh, sorry, health management. She got her master's in public health. And she got her PhD in health, and, and, and health management. So I go, I, I think I want to I wanna get a ring for her. And I want to propose because, you know, she's kind of been like, where's this going? And, and, and I don't want to lose her. I think she's really special and she's the best thing that ever happened to me. And one of the... One of the actors goes, hey, man, why don't you why don't you see where this pilot goes, man? Why don't you see how this audition goes? And, and just maybe if you book a pilot and, and and then it'll work out. And I remember kind of nodding my head being like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like if I book this pilot that then then it'll change the, the, the relationship status between me and Bina. 
Mm-hmm. Anyways, I don't get cuz bros. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember leaving the audition. I get into my car and I'm and I'm leaving, you know, the, the, the CBS lot and I give give them the little card and the, the little gate thing goes up and I'm driving away and my Camry with dents all over it. I, I basically was like, if I'm going to wait to marry the love of my life because of cuz bros, I am out of my fucking mind. <laughs> like I will never let cuz bros determine whether or not I should marry the love of my life. If I should call my parents and be a good husband and be a good son, fuck that. I'm just not going to navigate this this career. I'm, I'm going to navigate it on my terms, but I'm not mm-hmm. going to allow it to navigate me. I just cannot do that. And I remember being like, all right, I checked the Wells Fargo bank account. I had just enough to buy a ring and I bought it and I'm like, I'm doing this. I don't care. It, in terms of, of your home life, do you, does your wife weigh in on things? Do you like to run things by her or do you keep it kind of separate? You know, she, what's great, what I love about Bina is she, she has no interest in <laughs> popular culture or, or, or showbiz. Um, and again, I know you you have such a, you have such an amazing body of work and the people you've interviewed are incredible. My wife watches Hallmark Channel. She loves Hallmark Channel. It makes her feel good. All the Hallmark original movies have no like a shame happy in that. Ending. No shame in that. But like, if I'm like, Hey, do you want to go see Moonlight? Do you want to go see Green? But she's, I have no, she has no desire to see things that will make her sad. She just wants to watch. She works so hard helping patients. She's just like, I want to come home and just watch a happy story. I've seen too much crazy stuff. And God bless her for that. But what's great about her is she'll come in and she will watch rehearsal and she will give me an immediate gut check on things. You know, she'll just say, why are you? I remember there's certain jokes, you know, certain jokes get very common in political satire. Name calling. You'll just call a senator or a politician a certain name just because even if they're horrible. And I remember she said things like, you're better than that. She's always sort of forced me to to level up my game in a really good way. Now, don't get me wrong. I've slipped up. There are people that I'm like, I have no sympathy for. But at the same time, she's really great in that way. And has being a dad affected kind of your your comedy? You know, like as my daughter's growing up and every day she's changing so much, like rapidly changing. She's only 15 months right now. Oh, cute. Yeah, she's super adorable. And mm. and I know how lucky I am when other parents come and see her and they're like, oh my God, I remember when my kids were this age. Like, hang on to every moment. And I know I'm trading in every single one of those beautiful moments when she's smiling, when she's dancing, when she's smacking the table with her hands, when she's learning how to use a spoon hmm. when she's saying up down bye bye all that stuff i'm missing all that to be here at work for 16 hours so if i'm going to be here at work what it what it has done is been like man if i'm going to take this time to be away from her and be away from my wife this story better be worth it it better not be about some bs mm-hmm. it's got to mean something cuz i'm sacrificing my world for this so it's focused me in a really good way yeah. Well, your your wife has Hallmark movies and I have sports for me. And I noticed in learning about you and, and seeing your uh, social feeds and stuff, you're a huge sports fan. And you mentioned that you love, yes. um, uh, you know, your, your Sacramento team. But what is it that you really love just about sports in general? Well, to me, the thing I love about professional sports is it's one of the last 
vestiges of civic pride that we have in modern civilization. You know, my father always told me, he goes, I'm actually breaking his advice. He's like, do not talk about religion and do not talk about politics. And I've I've managed to (laughs) very quickly heavily talked about both of those things a lot over the past few years of my life, analyzing them quite significantly. But sports is one of those things where, for the most part, unless you're at an insane football game in, in, in Europe, you can argue, you can disagree, you can scream at the other person, you know. A Raptors fan can meet a Warriors fan and be like, I hate your guts. And they can argue for 30 minutes. And then at the end of it, be like, hey, man, I'll, let me get you a beer. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. It's a, it's one of those few things where you can argue with someone and be really passionate. Yankees, Red Sox, all, all that sort of stuff. And at the end of it, be like, all right, man, you're, you're, you're all right, man. All right, let's get back to work. You're not going to cancel the other person. You're not going to not you're not going to not invite them to Thanksgiving. It's this really beautiful thing where. It matters so much and it doesn't matter. And we need more things like that in life mm-hmm. where you can just invest so much into it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter at all. That's beautiful. Um, and so I love that. And as, as a person who grew up playing sports and really wanted to be a basketball player, <laughs> uh, it taught me a lot. It taught me about teamwork. It taught me about pushing yourself beyond your expectations when you're doing conditioning and your coach is making you run laps outside and you're like, I cannot run another lap. And then you're just doing it because you have to, because there's 12 other guys doing it. It makes you realize like I'm capable of doing things even beyond my own imagination. And then you learn how to lose gracefully because for the most part, a lot of us aren't in the league. So what happened to that guy or gal who you played in middle school or you played in high school or maybe you even played a little bit in college, you learn how to push yourself and compete and even learn with, learn from the losses in life and, and to continue to move on and still practice despite that. And on any given day, anybody can win too, which is the fun yeah, equalizer yeah, of it. <laughs> All right. Well, I've been asking, um, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just like kind of top of mind. I ask everybody these things. So what are you eating right now? What are you, what, what are you into food wise? What am I eating? Mm-hmm. Um, I am loving right by our offices. There's this place called Westville. Westville is like this um, place that does like burgers and salads and sandwiches, but they 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 do really hearty, healthy food. So it lets me eat it. I can eat the food and it's super filling, but I don't feel like garbage afterwards, which is a rare thing. Generally, if I have something that's really hearty, and substantial like a burger, I feel awful 45 minutes later. So <laughs> I love the things that sort of check both boxes where it's it tastes fun, um, but it's also like kind of substantial and meaty. My next question is, what are you reading? Um, the, the book I'm reading right now is this book called The White Tiger. It's just fiction. But fortunately, unfortunately, I have to be reading sort of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the news every day and just to stay informed. But my favorite thing to read, believe it or not, is the opinion section in both the journal and the New York Times because the opinion section is people's takes and their POV on the world. Mm-hmm. And it's a healthier version of Twitter. Twitter is just indiscriminate st- screaming in a stream <laughs> and it can be useful if you can sift through it. I love reading the hard copy newspaper and the opinion section in the newspaper because it's focused take. And it's still prescient and of the times because it's updated every day but 
it's a focused POV of what's happening in the world. And, mm-hmm. and, and I really like that. Uh, and since you're on Netflix, what are, what else do you watch on Netflix that isn't your own material? What's the last thing you binged? Well, I, I can't tell you the last thing I binged. I'm telling you what. So we just finished up our last episode. And what I'm waiting to binge is um, Ava's new show, When They See Us. Everybody's told us, told mm-hmm. me. I, like, they're like, you got to prepare yourself emotionally. So I'm trying to find now that we're about to go into the working dark and hiatus. I'm trying to find that perfect window where I can space it out, where I can watch it. I have time to think about it. Um, and also, like have a little bit of palate cleansing time to pick myself up from it that sort of go through that whole arc mm-hmm. but I it's can't so do, worth I, it yeah i can't wait to watch that i'm really looking forward to seeing it all right and then what are you listening to what am i listening to i mean i know you love the hip-hop so i don't know <laughs> i am a big fan of the hip-hop <laughs> you know what i'm listening to there's so many great hip-hop artists right now but on Wednesdays, um, on our tape days in the morning, my barber will come to the studio and I'll like, I'll get a haircut. And that time to be like when you're with your barber, it's, uh, I'll blast music from my childhood. So it's like nineties, early two thousands hip hop. So notorious B.I.G., tribe called quest, Jay Z, like, and I know like everyone's like, you should be listening to Travis Scott and you should be listening to this. But when I'm in that chair and it's the morning before we tape, I just want to tap into that feeling of like joy and fun of when I was just 15. And mm-hmm. I just want to feel that. So I sort of blast that through the little speaker in, in our makeup room. I know all the words. Oh, yeah. So, it's oh. just that feeling. It's I miss just, the 90s. Good. I miss the 90s. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. All right. You. How old were you when you brought your first pair of sneakers? 13 when I got my first pair of Jordans. But mm-hmm. I was 10 when I got my first pair of like sneakers that was actually expensive. So not on the sale rack, full price. Mom took me to Foot Locker and we bought them. It was 10. So, you know, yeah. And do you remember and what rem- they were? Yes. It was the Nike Air Penny. I remember. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Nike Air Penny. It was a big deal. And now do you buy like a pair every season or do you buy <laughs> like, is it just any? You know, you know what? I, you know, what's weird is that like. Now, you know, you'll get stuff sent to you, wardrobe, because oh, of course. We, we have shows. You have to change. You can't wear the same shoot. Like you have to change your clothes every time. Yeah. But I realize this is going to be this kind of sound kind of kind of sound hippy dippy ish. That's great. But I I'm starting to realize the reason why I look back on certain there are certain shoes that I really love is because, number one, the time and the scarcity the time you actually spent wearing them, you you built all these memories. Oh, remember you went to Disneyland in these and then you went here and then you blah, 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 blah. Mm. You went to that party. You built memories in the product itself. And then number two, scarcity. We live in a time of fast fashion where everyone's going to Zara and H&M and trying to change clothes every two days. That feeling of like, I remember that blue hoodie from middle school that I wore every day and I felt a certain way in it. And so... There's these like four or five shoes from when I was a kid. I I I obviously outgrew them and I rebought them when Nike retroed them, but it does not feel the same as when I first got them. And I realized it's because it's the memories you made in those shoes. And I try to remember that. Like wear your shoes and make memories in them. You know, life is short. Don't keep them in the box. Life is short. Wear your Jordans and make memories in them. Mm. 
That's a yeah. beautiful thing to end on. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This is going to be Thank you. Uh, awesome. I love talking to you. This was so fun. Honestly, it was so fun. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right. See you later. Right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me. Patriot Act is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Present Company is produced by Netflix and Gimlet Creative. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.